Donald Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared, every sentence is perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish Press, Elliot Resnick. Welcome to the Elliot Resnick Show, where we interview fighters and firebrands on the political and cultural battlefields. Two months ago, Torah Umasora held a conference in Florida at which former President Donald Trump spoke. 90% of that speech consisted of him reading, paraphrasing, and elaborating on an article written by Rabbi Dove Fisher. Who is Rabbi Fisher? Well, he has an impressive and long bio. Rabbi Fisher is the Rabbi of Young Israel of Orange County, California, a senior contributing editor at the American Spectator, a regular columnist for Arut Sheva, and vice president of the Coalition for Jewish Values. Formerly, he was an adjunct professor of law for 20 years, head of the Jewish Defense League, national vice president of the Zionist Organization of America, and national executive director of the Likud Zionist of America. There's more, but we'll leave it at that. Rabbi Fisher, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Thank you for joining us. Let me begin with your days at the Jewish Defense League almost 50 years ago now, even maybe more than that. When did you head this organization founded by Rabbi Mayor Kahana, and how long did you have that position? And how did you get it, actually? It was mostly in 1971 and 72. I was a freshman in college at Columbia University, and I was very much enamored by and and gripped by Rabbi Kahana's vision for Soviet Jewry. One night, he was speaking at Yeshiva University, and I decided I had to meet him. So I went to the speech, and I decided I was going to stay. There's like a long, long line of people after the speech. Everyone wants to ask him a question, shake his hand, get an autograph. And I just decided I'm just going to stay there all night till everybody's done. I'll be the last one. And I must have waited an hour and a half. And I finally got my chance to talk to him. And I talked to him for about five minutes. And he was kind of shocked that a guy from Columbia University was attracted to the JDL. He invited me to come to the office and get involved. And he He saw right away that unlike all the other people that were in his inner circle, I was a little bit different. I read the New York Times every day. His inner circle, they did not read the newspapers. And little by little, he started asking me to take on more and more responsibilities. And this went on throughout 1971. In September of 1972, there was the tragedy of the Munich Olympics when the Israeli 11 Israeli athletes were murdered. And he had made Aliyah that summer of 72. So he's in Israel, and he was involved in a plot to uh, ship some firearms and explosives to Europe to be used to kill some Arab terrorists. And the Israeli government caught him. They stopped him. They arrested him. And Golda Meir, then the prime minister, issued an order to uh, seize his passport, keep him in the country for trial, don't let him leave the country to come back to America. And he wrote me, he said, you're not letting me come back. And my plan, he said, was to be in Israel six months a year, America six months a year. And he doesn't know how many years he's not going to be able to come back. And JDL's going to fall apart if someone doesn't run it. So he said, I'd like you to run it. I said, I'm just finishing my freshman year in college. I'm totally unqualified. He said, I know you're unqualified, but everyone else is more unqualified. 
of all the unqualified people I can think of, you're the least unqualified. So, um, what can I, what can I say? He said, he was very good with the guilt. He said, basically, look, Dove, it comes down to this. Either you run JDL while I'm in Israel, or we're going to close JDL. So it's on you. And so I said, I'll step in, but I don't know what I can do. And that's the story of how I became really involved in running it for about a year till he got his passport back and was able to start running it again. I didn't want to interrupt you before, but you said you read the New York Times every day. I'm assuming and hoping you don't read the New York Times anymore. I've always felt that I should read at least the headlines, the main stories from one of the main left-wing newspapers. So I know what's going on on that side of the uh, aisle. And I so much despise the New York Times that I started reading the Washington Post every day. But let me tell you, it's just as bad. In fact, it's not even a newspaper. It's just opinion articles that are dressed up like news. So uh, what can you do? Right. What can you do? They run the media. That's why you have a podcast instead of a regular program on CBS or NBC. So yeah, I still occasionally read the Times. I wouldn't touch the paper itself. It doesn't come near my home. But occasionally I go online. I look at something they have to write, particularly if it's about the Mets or the Yankees or the breakdown and the collapse of the Brooklyn Nets. But yeah, occasionally I look at it. I stopped reading the New York Times shortly after the 2016 election when I realized time and again, if it was only biased news, then you filter out the bias and at least get the facts. But then when I started realizing that they lie about the facts, and then I started adopting the motto, which some people attribute to Mark Twain, which is that it's better to be uninformed than to be misinformed. So I stopped reading the Times. That's pretty good. Sorry? It's pretty good. Yeah. So I stopped reading the Times because I just didn't want to, I didn't want to fill my head with things which simply were not true. I want to affirm, not that you need it, but I want to validate what you said. And I find out at the Washington Post, too, that long ago, I mean decades ago, I learned how to read newspapers like the Times and the Post. I learned how to read through all the bias, which, by the way, you also find in the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, Times of Israel, and in Hebrew, Ma'ariv and uh, Yediot Achronot, and don't even mention Haaretz. Haaretz is the biggest lies of all. But um, I agree with you that for years and years, I learned how to filter out their filter, but more and more they lie. It's just fake news. It's truly not just an expression. It really is fake news. They just, they make things up. So that's when I gave up on them. Uh, What did you think of Rabbi Khan? I, I know you spoke a little bit about his work. What did you think about him, the man? As a person, he was amazingly wonderful. Even the people that despise him, if they had really gotten to know him as a person, they would have to say, I still despise him, but he's a nice guy. He's a funny guy and actually very thoughtful. I'll give you an example. One time he had to meet with me and there was no other time he could meet except a certain time, a certain day, and I was going to be at home. So he came to my apartment. I was still a college kid, remember? So he came to my apartment. I was married. And the thing is, he's going to join us for dinner. And my wife, who shared my ideological beliefs, was equally thrilled and beyond thrilled. Rabbi Kahan is coming to us for dinner. And she took the whole day cooking. She was like cooking for the, for the greatest guest we're ever going to have. 
and she went to so much trouble. Anyway, he comes, and he's right focused on what he's got to talk with me about. So we're sitting at the dining room table, and she's bringing out the food, and the evening's going on, and my wife and I are eating, and he's not eating anything because he's too busy in an important way talking. And it's sort of, he's finished talking, and we have finished eating. And he's about to leave, because we've agreed. Okay, we've got a plan. We know how we're going to handle it. We're all ready to start tomorrow. Yep. Okay, Dove, great. And he's about to leave, and he, he like, starts to get up, and he sits down. He, he looks at my wife, and he says, do you know, I just realized I did not eat anything and you probably went to great trouble making this dinner. And I don't want you to think that you went to this trouble and I did not eat. And I don't want you to think that I did not eat because I had a question about your kashru. So if both of you don't mind, I'm just going to sit down and I'm going to eat dinner right now. And you can go ahead and do your thing or stay at the table. Of course, we're going to stay at the table. We get extra minutes with him. But what motivated him? was it occurred to him, I don't want you to feel I had a question about your kashrut or that you went to all this trouble and I didn't eat. He was really a good guy as a, as a person. He was a mensch. I mentioned in the introduction that President Trump at a Torah Umasora conference in December read extensively from an article you wrote. In that article, you write that Trump should not really be faulted for meeting with Kanye West and Nicholas Fuentes. Explain if you would. You know, Trump is a character. We hold Trump on a certain level that he's not meant to be held by. I'm not a chassid. I'm not a uh, blind disciple of Trump. Frankly, uh, in 2024, you won't find me crying if Ron DeSantis is the uh, nominee of the Republicans. But Trump has to be understood on Trump's terms. He's a different ball of wax. I don't know if Trump reads newspapers. I don't know what he reads. I truly believe that he was not fully appreciative of the degree to which Kanye West is insane and a Jew hater to the max. I believe that Trump is not fully informed on areas that he's not fully informed, that he has interest areas. He can get himself tied in all day long and all night long on uh, truth social he can get into something and he could become absorbed in that. And then there are other things that he should know about and he doesn't know about. He's a different kind of president. I believe that what happened that night is that Trump got into his head that Kanye West may run against him in 2024 and Kanye West may pull some black conservatives. And I believe Trump was simply trying to sit down with him for 15 minutes, 30 minutes, wow him at Mar-a-Lago and all the glory and glitz of Mar-a-Lago and wow him that he gets private time with Trump, with Trump trying just to keep the bridge open and the, the connection there so that when the elections come, Trump fooled himself that somehow he'll be able to convince Kanye West not to run against him. I believe that's what it was about. And I truly believe that Trump had no idea who Nick Fuentes is, because quite frankly, until that event, a lot of people did not know who that nut is. But Trump got played. Trump thought he was playing West. And actually, West 
and West's campaign advisor were the ones who played Trump. And uh, he had it coming to him. What can I say? What can I say? You don't play people. And Kanye's worst anti-Semitic comments came actually after that dinner, not before. And if I'm not mistaken, that dinner was even set up a while earlier. It wasn't like set up that week or something. I think it had been set up before this whole anti-Semitic campaign started. And again, his pro-Hitler comments came after the dinner. And that's what I was often think to myself about that whole event. We see Kanye as an anti-Semite because we're Jews. Trump's not a Jew. For Trump, Kanye is an eccentric black rapper who took a major risk reputational risk by publicly endorsing him in 2018. So that's how Trump sees him. Like, you know, the anti-Semitism part is like just a a small part of him. That's not the central part of Kanye, the way Trump was approaching it, I think, before that dinner. That's the way I saw it. I totally agree with you. And one of the things about Trump, both good and bad, Trump is incredibly into loyalty. If you are loyal to Trump, Trump will stand by you even if you're evil and he should not be doing so, he does not sell out his people. Look how he took that idiot. What's her name? Amorosa. I mean, Amorosa shouldn't, not only did she not belong in the White House, she didn't belong in Washington, D.C. The thing is that Amorosa had been on his show. She helped him with his ratings. So he's loyal to her. Next thing you know, she's got a job in the White House. Trump is into loyalty. If you've been with Trump, and you didn't sell him down the river, he'll stand by you. Now, a lot of people don't understand that, but that's how he is. I think, I mean, this is way off the subject, but I think that's what did Nixon in. I think a lot of what did Nixon in during Watergate, it's easy to stand outside the picture and say the president of the United States finds out about a crime, he should report it right away. That's really tough when you find out that a bunch of idiots and morons just broke into the offices of your political opponent to help you out. So on the one hand, you should call the cops. On the other hand, these idiots did it to help you out. It's a, it's a challenge when people have risked their freedom that they could go to prison to help you out. And now you're going to be the one to call the cops on them. So life is complicated. And talking about loyalty, I also want to ask about 2024, because a lot of conservatives, I think, are throwing Trump under the bus now. And don't get me wrong, I have my own problems with Trump. But at the end of the day, I think after someone does so much good for you, for for number one, for the Jewish people, number two, for America, when someone does so much good for you and for the conservative movement and has suffered two impeachments and, you know, multiple lawsuits – trying to ruin his career and his business, I think you owe that person a measure of gratitude. I think the person has to, has to mess up terribly and egregiously for you just to abandon him and say, yeah, thank you very much. We'll go to the next guy. And I wrote an article like that for the town hall. I'm wondering what you think about that. I agree with you. There's a Jewish concept of akarata tov, gratitude. And there is something in Judaism as a core value, having gratitude, showing gratitude. There's a midrash, a... Uh, part of Judaic lore that because the water of the Nile River saved the life of Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, when he was that little baby and the Egyptian pharaoh wanted to kill all Egyptian baby boys and have them drowned, the mother put him in a uh, tar and pitch uh, lined basket and floated him on the water and the water saved his life, so to speak. And for that reason, when God smote Egypt with the 10 plagues, each plague was launched by the rod, the staff that Moshe was holding, would strike whatever the target is. 
But for the first plague, the plague in which the water turned to blood, God had Aaron, Moshe's brother, strike the water with the rod, rather than Moshe strike the rod into the water, because Moshe had no right to impose a plague on the water that saved his life. This idea of gratitude, you got to show some gratitude. The water had it coming to it, so the water was going to turn to blood anyway. But Moshe was disqualified from being the one to launch it because he owed the water gratitude. We owe Trump an extraordinary amount of gratitude. The man, first of all, on issues related to Israel, he recognized Jerusalem as the united capital of Israel. He moved the embassy to Jerusalem. He recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. He recognized the legality of Jewish communities up and down Judea and Samaria. He cut off the PLO office in Washington, D.C. He cut off funding to the UNRWA. He pulled the United States out of the UN uh, Human Rights Council, an anti-Semitic, anti-Israel body. He, one after another, cut off funding to the Palestine Authority. The guy, unbelievable. But then American Jews, he took a guy who deserved Whatever Rubashkin did in terms of immigration law and how he was running his factory in Iowa, Rubashkin was the victim of horrific anti-Semitism. He was sentenced essentially to life in prison for something that a person normally gets a year or two. They're anti-Semitic. The judicial system in Iowa, anti-Semitic. They did it to a, a young lady named Wendy Rungi, I believe, or Runge. In another context, they go after Orthodox Jews in Iowa. And he would have been there for life if Trump had not commuted his sentence. Trump, for the Jews, uh, named a person in charge of anti-Semitism in the colleges and started pursuing anti-Semitic things like in Rutgers under federal anti-discrimination uh, laws. Trump has been a tremendous, tremendous friend of American Jewry and of the Jewish people. And there is something rather disgusting watching Jews in any kind of public capacity, being among those criticizing Trump. If you don't like Trump and you don't like his personality and you feel he, let's say you're a Republican conservative and you feel he hurt us in the 2022 midterm elections with some of his candidates and you want to blame him perhaps for losing the two seats in Georgia in 2020, whatever it might be, you can go ahead and support DeSantis. You could support Nikki Haley, whoever you want to support, Mike Pompeo. But a little bit of decency, you should not be out there criticizing Trump. Let other people go after him if they must, just like Aaron went after the Nile River. A little bit of Akarasitov, a little common decency. You don't go after people who have done so much for you that no American president in history ever did and no American president ever will do again. You wrote an excellent article for the Jewish Press two years ago that began this way. At my first shul as a Rav, I was told, quote, soon enough you'll figure out that you have to compromise on principles or you'll never get anywhere, end quote. Then you continue. Wherever I went, I was told, quote, sooner or later, Dove, you'll learn that you can't feed a family on principles. Everyone sells out sooner or later, end quote. Were these people correct? You know, for most people, I think that really turns out to be what life is about, selling out. People just can't take it anymore. But there's a small number of us. I believe you're one of them. I don't just believe it. I know you're one of them. And I'm one of them. And because there are so few of us, we find each other. So I have the honor of living a life 
where I, my inner circle are people like that, where we just won't sell out. And it's very hard. My life is wonderful. I wouldn't change it with any, any other life. But it has been very often an extremely hard life that would not have had to be if I had sold out. I could have made a lot more money. I could have had a lot more peace of mind if I had sold out. It is true that as you go through life, if you will not sell out and you will stand by principle, something is going to have to give. In my case, I found that it is almost impossible to see rabbi of a big shul and stand on principle. At some point, you have to at best learn to hold your tongue so that if you don't sell out completely and actually take positions that are against what you believe, you somehow learn to live with yourself by not taking the positions you know that need to be taken. You just learn to shut up and you teach yourself, well, I am a rabbi of an Orthodox shul and I'm telling people to keep kosher and I'm telling people to keep Shabbos. So I'm doing good stuff. And if I don't tell them additional truths, well, if I did, then I couldn't do anything. That's just not the way I've lived my life. I've always asked myself, am I fungible? What do I mean by fungible? Dollar bills are fungible. Whether you have one particular dollar bill or another particular dollar bill, at the store, they don't say, I want the one on your left hand. I don't want the one on the right. They're all the same. That's fungible. 99% of rabbis of shuls are fungible. They're all the same. They're good. They keep Shabbos. They keep kosher. They learn Torah. They're devoted to teaching Torah, but they're not great leaders. They're leaders with a small L because at some point they learn with all the kishronot, all the skills and gifts God gave them. They don't have the guts to be great leaders. And to look at a congregation and say, I know I'm going to get a lot of trouble for this, but I want to tell you right now, Black Lives Matter is anti-Semitic, and I don't want anything to do with it. Rabbi won't do that, because the rabbi's going to be afraid I got a liberal somewhere in the shul, and they'll go after my contract. The rabbi will not get up and say, I really believe this election, you must vote Republican, not because I'm a Republican. Another year, I'll tell you to vote Democrat. But this year, the Republicans will be good for Israel, and the Democrats will be bad for Israel. A rabbi won't do that because he's terrified to lose his job because there'll be two Democrats on the board of directors that insist that he be fired. So, Elliot, to your question, I, I have found that if you don't sell out and you really stand on principle all the way, you really will have a harder life. And I know you've had that. I won't uh, take your program to tell your story, but I know you stood for principle and you've done things. You could have gone the easy route and you'd have a much easier time. And instead, there were certain things where you felt, I'm sorry, I am so burning inside on a certain issue and I'm not going to repress what I believe. And uh, you're, you're Exhibit B, I'm Exhibit A. Thank you very much for your kind words. But I really like that article because I think the moral of that article is that ultimately you might have a harder life, but you have a more glorious life. Oh and my, you go yeah. example to example. I mean, you've, it's not like, you know, oh, you didn't sell out and therefore you're now in the gutter or homeless. You're, thank God, very successful. 
you write for major publications. You had President Trump read your article at a, at a speech. So it's not like I, I like that article because the moral of the story is that if you do stand up for principle, often God winds up helping you. And it might not be the easy route, but but you will come out on top. I think you started your own show at the end. I think that was your solution. You just said, fine, I'll start my own show. And you have, I think, a very successful show, if I'm not mistaken. This is very true. I absolutely agree with you. And if it, if I didn't address that part of it, I do want to address it for anyone listening to the podcast. I don't want to discourage people from living your values and not selling out. Because as Elliot just said, and I agree, in the end, that is the key to the happy life and the most fulfilled life. I had a very unusual experience this past March one year ago. I was at death's doorstep. I developed something called interstitial lung disease that basically killed me. Over a six-year period, my lungs became more and more incapable of taking in oxygen. And my wife saw me degrading to the point that um, I wasn't just wheezing. I was really just about dead. And I thought I had more juice left in me than I did. She set up a schedule, an appointment at the Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles. She wanted me to be evaluated by the lung transplant team. I didn't want to do that because I've read about people with transplants. Then the body starts rejecting the transplant. I don't want to deal with that. Anyway, she dragged me. I went to the transplant interview, and they did some tests on me, diagnostics, and said to me, we have some interesting news for you. If you go home tonight, you're probably or very possibly not going to wake up tomorrow morning. This may be your last day of life. And uh, we recommend if you want to even consider a transplant, you should check yourself into the hospital right now because tomorrow is going to be too late to check yourself in. You might be checking yourself into a morgue. So I did check in. I've had a transplant. It's a year later. That day... I had a lot of thoughts on my mind. You know, to trans to check yourself into a hospital, you have to go to the emergency room. They don't just take you right in. And what's happened in America, for reasons that we'll talk about in another podcast, is that when you go to an emergency room, it's like that's not an emergency. You have to sit six hours, eight hours. So I sat six, eight hours in that emergency room, understanding that I may be dead in the next 24 hours. And my entire life, not just figuratively, I literally relived my entire life and started asking myself, have I wasted my life? Have I... And because of the things you and I have just talked about, I actually came up with a conclusion that although there are some additional things I'd like to do, I actually have lived my life. That I could go to a Kaddish Baruch Hu at the end of Olam Hazeh, and I don't know what will happen in that judgment, but that I can say I did the best I could. And I have no regrets in the sense of all the things I might have done, but that I restricted myself from doing because I sold out. No, not at all. I really lived my life fully and I've had a complete life. And then I decided, okay, if I have extra time, there are some extra things I want to do, particularly write books, because I the one thing that I hadn't done is I hadn't left a lot of stuff behind. I want to leave behind a legacy. So now I'm actually focused on writing books. But to answer that question, you have no idea what it's like, you who are listening in on the podcast, to be at the moment when you really are in your last hour of life, analyzing, have I wasted my life, to be able to say, I actually lived 
my complete life, my way, that's an amazing thing. And I can say I, I felt that way. Baruch Hashem, and thank God you're still around with us right now. Um, the last topic I think that I want to speak to you about is the culture wars, and, and to ask you if Jews should be more involved in the culture wars, because I don't think, and I was talking with somebody over Shabbos about this, I don't think there's ever been a time in the last 2,000 years that Torah morality has been under greater attack. There, were, of course, was a moral rebellion in the 1960s as well, the 1970s, but it wasn't supported by the elites. You didn't, for example, have major politicians or media outlets or heads of major companies or universities calling you a bigot in the 1960s or 70s if you didn't support men and women being intimate with one another before marriage. Today, though, if you oppose transgenderism or homosexual marriage, you will be called a bigot by the most powerful members of society. Now, despite this frontal attack against Torah morality, Torah Jews are almost nowhere to be found in the defense of these Torah values. They're sticking to the base medrash and talking about Talmud Torah and Ahav Yisrael, love of fellow Jews and Jewish unity. Do you think this is perhaps a mistake or even worse, a dereliction of duty on our part? This brings us back to being principled and being ready to lose friends and to even lose salaries standing up for what you know is right. Gay marriage is an evil. Homosexuality is a perversion. These are very strong words. I'm very calmly, not in an argument, using words. It is perverse to be homosexual. That doesn't mean that a homosexual should be discriminated against at work. They should be treated properly. They should not be mocked. We shouldn't use epithets and roll our eyes. But we also need to recognize we have to speak truths. God made a man and he made a woman. And man and woman are supposed to be together and procreate and have children. Sometimes they can't have children. That's how life goes. But homosexuality does not have within it the capacity to create children. It's not the way men and women were created. It is a perversion and a corruption and a deviation from what God created. That's number one. Gay marriage is wrong. It is something that for more than 3,000 years, society has recognized. The Talmud speaks about even non-Jewish societies, that at least what you had to say for them, for all the problems, is they did not write gay marriage licenses, marriage documents. That's in the Talmud. In Chulin, I believe it's... Uh, Folio 92. Finally, this transgender stuff. If homosexuality is a deviation and a perversion, what is to be said about transgenderism? The crime, it's like a crime against humanity. Cutting off a boy's personal parts or a girl's personal parts, giving them hormones that they're going to have to take for the rest of their lives, and it's going to force a boy to remain a girl for the rest of his life, long after he's realized he made a mistake, or vice versa, for a girl to become male. And this idea that, God forbid, such a person goes through that, it's horrible. At least, I, I don't even think that should be, but at least wait till they're 18 before you talk to them about it, before you consider it. But the idea of teaching this garbage in the public schools to elementary school children and talking to them about Male, even male-female relations in elementary school. That's not what elementary school is there for. It's for learning to read, write, learning honest history, learning arithmetic. It's not for this garbage. And instead, this idea of, well, I've got a 10-year-old, an 11-year-old, 
boy, he says he's a girl, so we should go ahead. That's ridiculous. No normal 11-year-old wants to change genders. There's something sick, and I'm saying it calmly. There is something perverted and sick when an 11-year-old boy says, I want to be a girl. If an 11-year-old boy would say, I want to be a girl, the natural response should be, you'll grow out of it. Here's a football. Go outside. The fact that you like Beethoven and Mozart, and you like painting, and you like arts and crafts, and you even like ballet like Rudolf Nureyev, that doesn't mean you're a girl. It means you have certain interests. And the fact that you're a girl and you like to play baseball, that doesn't mean you're a boy. You'll go and you'll find you're a lovely girl, you're a fine boy, and you'll grow out of it. And for the rare case that doesn't grow out of it by age 18 and 20, so deal with it then. But this is part of a corrupt, perverted culture that teaches, can you imagine? Well, my son is 10 years, 11 years old. He wants to be a girl. And so I'm opposed to a law in the state of Missouri, let's say, where they're going to say you can't do this to 11-year-old. Well, good for Missouri. And don't, don't let them do this to kids. And good for Florida. And good for every state that's taking the lead and stopping this transgenderism nonsense, particularly with children. I want to also focus a little bit on the Torah morality, because I do think, I mean, Avram Avino didn't just keep the Torah in private. He had a sort of mission to the world to talk about monotheism. And it seems like these are basic Torah morality issues that are being under attack for the first time in really thousands of years. And it's, not, it's, not, it's not a metaphor. It's really literal. And rather than defending God, we're kind of retreating and, and st- sticking to safe topics. And I, I just sometimes think that maybe we're, we're kind of missing the boat and not doing what we were put on the earth to do, which is sort of defend God's values. I agree with you. That's why we started uh, together with Yaakov, Rabbi Yaakov Menken, Rabbi Pesach Lerner. I'm going to leave some name out. I'm sorry. Rabbi Avram Gordimer, Rabbi uh, Yoel Schoenfeld, Zev Smason, Moshe Parnas, uh, myself. Uh, Rabbi Steve Pruszynski, my, my, maybe my best friend of all. That's why we founded Coalition for Jewish Values. We were disgusted that even the mainstream Orthodox groups, they have no guts. The Orthodox Union, there's at least three or four Orthodox Union congregations that have women rabbis. They know it's forbidden. Orthodox Union arranged to have their own post and their own rabbinic Torah authorities study and publish a paper on the question of women rabbis. They came out and said, you're not allowed to do it. An Orthodox Union, five, six years later, still tolerates women rabbis at several of their congregations, like one in Los Angeles, B'nai David Judea, there's one in Washington, D.C., and of course, the world center of perverted Orthodox, open Orthodoxy, is Hebrew Institute of Riverdale, an Orthodox Union congregation. In the same way, the Rabbinical Council of America. They never take a stand on these issues. Only the other day I saw that the um, current director of NCSY, the Teenage Outreach Group of Orthodox Union, is going to be, on his podcast, is going to be interviewing a publicly open homosexual comedian. And the guy goes around, he says, I'm Orthodox, and I'm homosexual, and I'm gay married to a non-Jew. Not that it would be any better to be gay married to a Jew, 
I mean, I can't even believe things have gotten that bad that I'm trying to reach some listeners by saying, if you don't have a problem with being gay married to a Jew, he's gay married to a non-Jew. I mean, how much more do we need? And he's going to be an honored guest of an Orthodox Union NCSY podcast. It's disgusting. That's why Coalition for Jewish Values is created, because there's no voice in the Orthodox. There are very few voices in the centrist modern Orthodox world who are really speaking out for Torah values. And so um, it's a shame. It's one of the most painful of all things that we cannot find the proper leadership among Orthodox Union and Rabbinical Council. But you know why? It's all about the Benjamins. It's all about money. You have donors and the Orthodox Union doesn't want to lose their donors and the RCA doesn't want to lose their donors and they don't have the honor to fight the good battle, Nohamas Hashem, down the wire, even to the tough battles like homosexuality, uh, transgenderism, and the perverted culture of what's happened to American society. All right, thank you. But I agree with what you said before also, that I think the goal in life should be that, God forbid, if you're in a situation where you have to review a whole, your whole life, that you might be dead in 24 hours, that you could feel comfortable when I get upstairs, I'll be able to have something to say in my defense rather than to say to God, well, I'm sorry, I was just, was, you know, yeah, you're right, I should have done X, Y, and Z, but I was too much of a coward. You don't want to have to be in that position where that's what you're going to have to say. So anyways, thank you so very much for joining us, us on the program today. If you want to learn more about you, they should go to your website, or I think RabbiDove.com. Is that the best place? Or RabbiDove.com. You could also go to my shul website, Y-I-O-C. That's Young Israel of Orange County, Y-I-O-C.org. Okay, perfect. Thank you so very much again for your time. Thanks a lot, Elliot. All right, that does it for us. As always, if you want to sign up for our newsletter, just go to onevs450.com. That's onevs450.com and scroll down and you can sign up for our newsletter. And never forget the message of onevs450.com. I owe that to Professor Yoram Hazoni in Israel. He's the one who told me, whenever you see tons of people on one side of an issue, always be suspicious that it's a herd mentality. And always remember, El Yohanavi was one standing against 450 false prophets of Baal. He was right, they were wrong. Avram Ivri was standing on one side of the world, everyone was on the other side. And who was right and who was wrong? Avram was right. Never be intimidated. If you have the truth on your side, stand tall and fight strong. All right. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Have a great night or a great day, depending on when you are listening.